Welcome to Two Quants and a Financial Planner, where we bridge the worlds of investing and financial planning to help investors achieve their long-term goals. Join Matt Ziegler, Jack Forehand, and me, Justin Carbonell, as we cover a wide range of investing and planning topics that impact all of us and discuss how we can apply them in the real world to achieve the best outcomes in our financial lives. Justin Carbonell and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. Matt Ziegler is Managing Director at Sunpoint Investments. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital or Sunpoint Investments. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital or Sunpoint Investments. All right, gentlemen, today we are going to uh, have a little fun, I think, and, and hopefully um, help our listeners and audience uh, learn along the way. And what we're going to do is just kind of tackle and walk through some of the things that we're hearing in investing in the markets and sort of have this little fun, we're calling it fact or fiction. It may not end up being like what most fact and fiction sort of discussions are like, but it's it's trying to kind of think about some of these important points for investors and really what the takeaway is. What can we learn from these types of things. And it's going to range from investment allocation, some of the things all, uh, around AI. Um, we're going to talk about the four or 8% rule. We'll see where we land on that one. And then, you know, just a host of other things that we sort of spend time thinking about here, both Matt, from your seat as someone that's advising clients and from RC Jack in terms of building and running quantitative strategies. Um, so let's start with something that I think a lot of investors are thinking about or asking themselves about, particularly after 2022, which it's kind of hard to believe that is, you know, over a year ago that we are in an environment where at the end of 22, both stocks and bonds were down quite significantly. Um, that's changed a lot over the last year or so, but, you know, that's what transpired in that market. So the first question is, and is this fact or is this fiction? we'll see where we land, is that bonds are uh, insufficient as a diversifying asset for a uh, equity portfolio or for a stock so I, portfolio. I'm going to go with fact on that one, um, although I'm going to caveat it a little bit at the end. But, you know, I think if you look at, like, if, if you want a sufficient diversifying asset, you want to look at all the potential economic outcomes we could have. And, you know, one of the reasons we were all spoiled is we did not see inflation for a really long time as one of those potential outcomes. And that is the Achilles heel of both stocks and bonds. And so I think if you, if you want true diversification, it has to be a fact that bonds are not enough because if we did like the seventies or any other period, if we spent a bunch of time in that quadrant, you know, you've got the different quadrants, you've got economic growth, you've got, you know, recession, you've got rising inflation, you've got falling inflation. You've got, if, if we spent a bunch of time in that inflation quadrant, you're going to have problems with stocks and bonds. So I would say to me, that, that's a fact that they're insufficient. But I also think you have to think about like investors and their time frame a little bit. So like small bouts of inflation, if somebody invests for the long term, if they're really strong behaviorally, if they don't make many changes, like they can probably get, get along fine with a stock and bond portfolio. They just have to understand they might have a longer period where that thing struggles than they've seen in the past. But I don't think there's any reason to believe we won't still get a good expected return from stocks in the long run and bonds in the long run. So I think for that type of investor, they're probably fine with stocks and bonds, but I do think it's a fact that you need something more than stocks and bonds to be truly diversified. I want to say fiction, but <laughs> I like the way that you just answered that. And that's probably the root of my answer too. I think the problem with this question, and it's a convenient question to be able to throw out there, like 
are bonds all I need or I don't need bonds at all is like this, the insufficient part of this. Like what, what is insufficient even mean here? And I would throw it back as like, you need stuff that zigs and zags. If we take this to the most like extreme point of just saying a stock is an ownership in a business. If all I do is own a business and I own nothing else, I am solely tied to the performance of that business. And that's probably not a good idea. I should probably have some money in the bank or something else that helps. Again, I need stuff that zigs and zags. The more things I have that zig and zag, so I go out and I make a loan to somebody else and they pay, pay me back on interest in this uber simple com, uh, example is the more things I have that make money for me and can work in different environments, the more diversified I have, the safer my portfolio I have, the smarter that more my portfolio can be. So it's only insufficient to the way you don't understand at all how these things are going to work for you. And that's probably more evident about not having a plan than it is about anything with the underlying investments. One of the things that I wonder is coming off of 2022, terrible year for stocks, terrible year for bonds, but yet the 60-40 came roaring back in 2023. And so I sort of feel like for investors to believe that this is actually a fact, we need, they need to see uh, a longer time, a longer term period of, you know, stocks and bonds basically both not working because it's kind of like, you know, now things are, I don't know what, I think the 60-40 was up, don't quote me on this, maybe like 12 or 14% or something like that last year, which is which is pretty pretty solid. So it's like, it's like investors have short-term minds and it's like, okay, now stocks and bonds are sufficient for me, but you know, they're kind of forgetting what happened. And, and that's kind of the, the risk of short-termism, I guess. And, and also not necessarily understanding history because I think in the seventies, you know, you had a very long period of stocks and bonds and not working where this other, other types of diversified, you know, defying asset, assets would have been really helpful. You got to at least have zigs and zags. If you can have zigzags and zogs and zoinks and zinks or whatever else, that's diversification. That's what you're aiming for. Diversification means you're going to hate something that you own at any point in time. If you only own stocks and bonds, you got punched in the face in 2022 and you made a little bit back in 2023 on it. But it's just that idea of like, get beyond the zigs and zags if you can at a minimum, because it'll help you plan for more diverse environments, which I think is the point you're both making too. And, you know, to your point, Justin, this is the big problem though, is by the time you recognize you need these things a lot of times, you know, it's sort of the wrong time to do it. Um, so for instance, like if, if inflation does go down here, which it might, you know, by the time people are like, oh, you know, I really need all these other asset classes, the other asset classes are going to perform poorly. And that doesn't mean it, putting those other asset classes in doesn't build a better long-term portfolio. But it means if those other asset classes go through a three years where they struggle, then I'm going to be like, well, I don't, I don't need those other asset classes. So to some extent, maybe I'm arguing for stocks and bonds in that it's very hard for people to figure out, like either you need these things in there over the long term and you need to live with the fact that there's going to be times where they're a drag on your portfolio or you just don't have them at all. Like the trying to get them in at the right time, like we've talked about before in the podcast, like the permanent portfolio got massive inflows after 2008. Everybody at the exact wrong time started throwing tons and tons of assets into the permanent portfolio. So if you're going to do that, you're better off just not having this stuff at all. And don't forget, like, yes, the timing, the behavior gap of timing is real. It will come and it will find you and it will bite you. And we talk about stocks and bonds, stocks, bonds, and cash is like the core things. 
because they're giant, deep, liquid, easy to access markets to the degree that it makes sense for you to get more into alternatives, to get more into privates, to get more into other things like real estate portfolios. You're trading off something else to get access. You can build a really good portfolio with stocks stocks alone. You can build a really good, a better portfolio probably with stocks and some mix of bonds and or cash. You can probably build an even more robust portfolio when you start to add in other things with other drivers. But it's that mix. And to your point, don't think you're going to be some genius and time the exact mix of these things. The world is cruel. One of the things that a lot of investors are trying to figure out here is the impact of AI on companies, the markets, um, on our own lives. You know, I'm using ChatGPT on a regular basis. I actually just did subscribe to Microsoft's Copilot because I wanted to see how that integrates into the office suite. So just, and, and you know, and, and that, that's at like the micro level, but at the macro level, you know, there's some professionals out there that think that there's a chance that, you know, the value creation in AI uh, has the potential to be larger than the internet um, and the value that was created from the internet, whatever the internet is now. <laughs> so what do you guys think about that in terms of factor fiction? Well, if it's, you know, if, if there's a greater than 25% chance we're going to have an AI bubble, I'd probably say fiction, but I, I do think there's a higher chance than people think, you know, Every major technology innovation, you know, typically does have some sort of bubble associated with it, or it's very common. And I think the bubble is to some degree a, a function of how big of an innovation it is. And I think AI is a massive innovation. I think it probably is like a beyond internet level innovation. Once we figure out, and I don't think any of us really know what it's going to mean for our lives, but once we figure that out, I think it probably is. Um, so I do think there's a chance we're going to have some major stock market bubble that, that erupts because of this, I don't know, obviously the problem is you don't know when. You don't know when it's going to end. There's nothing you can do about it just because you think it's going to happen. It's not like, you know, you don't know which companies are going to be the biggest beneficiaries. You know, we had Adam Butler on the podcast. He talked about a lot of the beneficiaries here might be the smaller companies, um, maybe that aren't even, you know, that aren't even public type companies. You might have a lot of one, two, three, four, five person firms that benefit. Although obviously, you know, the Microsofts and the, the Amazon with the cloud, I mean, you know, and the NVIDIAs, I mean, they're going to benefit too, but um, we don't know exactly where the benefit's going to accrue. And so, yeah, I do think there's a decent chance of this, but I don't, I don't think there's anything you can really do about it. It's really important. And it's one of those things, I think we've talked about it on here before, but it goes back to um, the product or technology or idea adoption life cycle idea. Um, and this is, this is that idea, I think it was Jeffrey Moore, whoever wrote Crossing the Chasm, I think it's Jeffrey Moore talks about this idea of how, how ideas are adopted. And this is really important because it's like, there's something new, it's out there. You have the early adopters who tinker around. Um, then you have like the next wave of people who come in and it, what it describes is the gradual rollout of any technology into any more mature industry. And I think back in my life, like the equivalence to this, we see everywhere. So like the adoption of like the VCR, or like the first DVD or Blu-ray players or stuff. It like, it starts off with like the cool on the edge people and then slowly more people into it and then flash forward a few years into the thing. And now like, you know, your grandfather needs help programming the clock on his VCR. We're going to go through the same thing with AI. 
The piece that happens on the front end is the more excited people get about the potential for this thing, the bigger the bubble potential becomes. And a lot of money gets made and a lot of money gets lost in that bubble. But that sucking up of capital, like if the smaller companies have the ideas, and there's a lot of reasons to believe that's going on right now. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but there's a bunch of software we use with vendors that generative AI has basically like turbocharged their use. I am shocked at some of the financial planning tools and uh, tools for managing private investments, tracking them, not the exciting part. Like, how do I go to a hundred websites and get all of my like tax information pulled down into these files? AI is doing that. And small companies are figuring out ways to do it, which is going to suck a bunch of capital in this space, get hopes up, probably get some people crazy optimistic. I don't know how to put odds of a bubble on that, but that has to then deflate before the rest of the train can pull forward. And as investors and allocators, we just have to be smart about that. We're going to feel like we're left behind when certain things are going to the moon. Then we're going to want to laugh at it when it's in the toilet, maybe in another year or two. But who knows if the next Amazon, Google, and Apple are out here walking amongst us right now. So I may be completely wrong about this, um, but I think that if AI starts to disrupt business models and new businesses emerge, I think that's where you have the bubble potential. I think that, and it's, that's hard for me per personally to see. I certainly see it on a productivity you know, I think I could see more and more companies using this, more people using it, becoming more productive. You could make the argument that that may translate, even though Adam Butler, I think I asked him this, you know, I, I would think it would translate into higher profits of companies. And so it could lift maybe multiples across the board of those. But I don't know. I mean, I think the internet totally disrupted business models. Um, and again, I, I don't, maybe I probably wouldn't have seen it there either. But you know, Amazon starting as a bookseller and then becoming one of the largest retailers in the world. I mean, that's disruptive to retail. Um, so I think I think the, the the big big bubble potential is if you start to see um, business models and industries really being disrupted by the technology and new emerging companies forming off of it. If it's just a productivity thing then maybe it's not necessarily bubble-ish. It's just higher profitability, which investors can get excited about too. Um, I don't know. Those are just a couple of thoughts on it. Yeah, this is hard because you don't know, I mean, where the beneficiaries are. That's the hard part about it is like, we think looking back at the internet, we're like, oh, obviously Amazon was a big beneficiary of the internet. But like, think about, you know, Matt's big position in pets.com back in the day. Um, you know, obviously some, some of these things didn't work out for people the way they thought. So like putting yourself back in that time and saying, like, what are the beneficiaries? Like, it's very likely that if, if they're going to be, there probably will be companies like Amazon, that, that like that big companies that'll come out of the AI thing, but they may not be public right now. You know, they may not even be companies we could potentially look at right now. And that, that's the challenge is you just can't, you can't buy all the boats in a bubble like this because a lot of the boats don't make it. Um, and, and so it becomes, that's why it's uninvestable to some degree, other than the people that are really, really smart and can figure out what the right things are because you just don't know in advance what's going to work. There's also the really important and I think interesting part about we can have a bubble in financial assets. We also might be, be seeing, and the internet heralded, heralded in some of this too, like there's, there's kind of like 
the internet showed us there was a human capital bubble around a bunch of like pure admin tasks that then got redistributed over the years into like new administrative tasks to, you know, to oversee the first iteration of our robot overlords. And I wonder with AI and the way that companies form around a lot of this stuff, if the internet gave us infinite shelf space, AI is giving us the ability to be librarians for that shelf space in a whole new way. And there's a whole new type or a different class of like knowledge workers or people who send emails all day, every day. And that's basically their existence and stuff like that in the post-internet era where there's a human capital bubble inside of this too, especially with the changes in productivity. So it's going to be really interesting to think about all these stories collide. Uh, they cascade into one another and sometimes the best sounding idea, like my pets.com position that I didn't actually have. But in hindsight, it's like, yeah, it makes sense. People like their pets more than they like their kids. Of course, it's a good idea for pets.com, but that didn't work out. And I don't know, maybe like I'm thinking of like IDEX Labs and some of the other things that did work out over time. Or think of all the weird stuff that just does better than everything else. Like how many people knew Domino's was going to be like one of the top performing stocks for all these years? It's friggin' Domino's, but I don't know, maybe AI Domino's becomes bigger than Google. That's that's my humility lesson for the day. The uh, the one thing I'll say before we move to the next thing is I don't know if you remember back in the day, Justin, like, you know, there was a precursor to Validia that was like in that dot-com bubble that was like an internet startup. And like we, we had discussions with all kinds of like companies over the years, like, oh, this company is going to buy us. This company is going to buy us. Like if I named those companies, like none of them exist anymore, like zero of them. So it's just like, it just go in back then we were like, oh, wow, this, you know, whatever.com is going to be like, is taking a look at us. That, that's in incredibly impressive. And like, you know, up the chain, they all did, they all just went away. So it, it just goes to show how hard it is. I don't know if like, if you guys remember back in like 20, probably between 2013 and like 2015, like robo advisors were all the rage, Betterment, Wealthfront, Personal Capital. And those businesses um, certainly raised a lot of money and they were at the time, you know, pretty popular. I think with younger investors, maybe investors with, you know, less overall wealth, less complex situations. Um, but there was talk at the time that, you know, financial advisors are done and these robo advisors are going to take over everything. And, and yet here we are today and, you know, there's probably no hotter besides AI, you know, financial advisory practices and wealth management businesses are, are really flourishing. And, you know, there continues to be an aggressive sort of acquisition roll-up strategy across the board in terms of firms trying to grow assets and, and, um, bring on new clients and, and all that. So, but the question is, you know, could you see a day where actually AI maybe does start to truly compete with your personal advisor? Like just because I kind of use ChatGPT a lot, you know, could you have, I'm just thinking this out loud here, spitballing with you guys. Like, could you, you know, what, what does a financial advisor do when they first onboard a new client, they get all of their uh, financial information, bank account statements, investment account statements, their budget. Imagine an investor had the ability to just upload all that into ChatGPT and have ChatGPT sort of outline a financial plan for you and then adjust it on the fly. Or imagine if that information could live real time in ChatGPT or something like ChatGPT. So every transaction you made was you know, in this AI engine and you were kind of getting real-time financial feedback, but also real-time portfolio adjustments as sort of the market changes, as your financial situation changes. 
Um, you know, I don't know. Now, are, are investors willing to sort of live with that non-human interaction? I mean, maybe if we're all robots in the future, yeah, fine. But, you know, we're humans now, so <laughs> probably not. So I'm calling this one fiction, but I'm interested to see what you guys have. Matt, I'm, I'm guessing I know where you're going, but... Jack, I think our Justin GPT is uh is hallucinating again. <laughs> Blow out his cartridge or whatever. You yeah. Do. Um, so there there's two parts of this that really that really get my attention, and I'll start with the more abstract one first. I think a lot of this comes down to comfort in interfacing with these things, and I think I think this is really important to understand. So do you remember? Let's go back to when Amazon was new before and it felt weird to like put your credit card on the internet. Mm -hmm. Do you remember mm -hmm. that? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Okay. So it's going to be weird for probably everybody present age, like, I don't know, 25 ish, 22 ish. Maybe it extends up to 30, but there's an age cutoff here where probably nobody over the age of 25 or 30 ish is ever going to feel comfortable like only interfacing with artificial intelligence when it comes to advanced personal issues. And that's just because if you spent, like I spent the first 42 years of my life having like an adult or a person in a uniform or a doctor or a whatever else interface with me over complicated things. Doesn't mean that a spreadsheet or a calculator or something rational can't help me understand that thing but my level of comfort in that as a pure and only interface is just probably not going to be there in my lifetime. I will become a cranky old person while GPT doctors are solving other people's problems. And I'll be like, where is the real man? I need the real woman or whatever to explain this to me. So I think that's an important part of the adoption of these things. It could happen probably a ways into our future. Uh, Self-driving cars would be another example. It's hard for people to turn on the autopilot and just be like, yeah, I'm cool with this. But if I'm 15 years old and I never drove and I'm like, this can get me to my, I don't know, virtual mall or wherever 15 year olds hang out this day today, like that's probably a pretty novel, amazing solution. The other part of it. So now for like that demographic that's older, that still wants something else. The industries evolved from like the selling of products, which I think runs up into the nineties. Then you get like the widespread adoption of uh, allocation funds, diversification, all that stuff that finally like cracks into the public conscious. We see the tech boom and everything else that launches in the middle of this. Planning, I think, is like the last 20-ish years of, of the financial planning and the investment advisory industry. Planning has become the dominant piece. That's finally, there's still a lot of crap planning out there, but that's finally like the common table stakes of everybody has to do some form of planning or talk that language a little bit. And I think some version of like coaching, I'm not going to go so far as to say financial therapy, but like the one-to-one -one relationships that says, I have a adult with some amount of expertise in my life that I can compensate in some way for basically help and thinking through all my money issues. I think that's where we are professionally. Chat GPT AI is not at a level to do that with a user base that would be comfortable with a, a technology to do that. So don't hold your breath. Robo advisors with the power of AI, maybe in our lifetime, but I'm going to stay on the side of the revolution and down with Skynet. Kill yeah, the Terminators. See, I would do fiction here too. I think there's like behavior is such a huge part of this and like such a huge part of the value of an advisor is avoiding 
like a major mistake at the wrong time. And I just don't know, like at this point, if somebody's going to like go to the keyboard and be like, my portfolio was down 40%. Please tell me that I you know, help me stay the course or whatever. And, you know, so I just don't know that this type of thing is going to help during those periods. Now, having said that, I mean, maybe eventually there'll be, you know, an AI version of Matt that I'm actually talking to that is powered by AI where I can be like, you know, I can have a conversation, but I just don't know how, I mean, it, it's got to be a long way before that's the same way as talking to actual men, like that I have a relationship with that I've trusted over the years. Like it, it seems to me we're a long way from that. But what if it's the same way, even if it's the same way, but you know, it's a computer, like, does that change? I feel like the leap from where we are to, I'm thinking of that movie, her, like the leap from where we are to that, that there's less appeal for that to a broader demographic. That's my sense. Do you, no, do you buy that? You're, you're right about that too. Like for, like for me, going back to the self-driving thing, like I'm at a certain age where I've driven long enough that like my car has the self-driving thing, but like, I won't completely, I won't, I, I mean, I, you legally, you have to look at the road, but even if I didn't, like, I have to have like some, I'm holding on to it. Like I'm, I'm always going to be that way. I think no matter what happens. And so you're the same, like for someone of my age, like, will I ever trust AI to completely handle my entire financial situation? I mean, probably not. So you're right. I mean, I think the advisors are going to be around for a really long time. Having said that, I mean, we do underestimate these things. So 30 years from now with people who have grown up this way the whole time, I mean, what it's going to look like. I mean, I don't think any of us have any idea about that, but I think you're right in the short term that the risk here is minimal. I will, I will never. So the lesson that I always invoke on this in my head, I will never forget basically having, um, uh, kids of a bunch of friends, like in a car and like, so we, we pick them up from like school or whatever. And they're all like mid high school teenagers it's within the last like 10 years. And it was like, oh, oh, can we run to like Panera or whatever? And it's like, yeah, you know, why not? Like we'll drive over to the Panera 15 minutes from the school. And so we like pull up and it's like, all right, you guys like know what you want to get or whatever. And they're, they, they've all already placed their orders on the app and it's like waiting on a shelf inside the door. Nobody has to talk to anybody. And I'm going, this is hell. This is my hell. <laughs> but like, holy crap, none of them have batted an eyelash at this thing. And that, that, that just rolls in with a new generation and the tools they grow up on. And even though we're both going to be holding on to the steering wheels and having probably children laugh at us someday, <laughs> like we have to accept the fact that somebody's coming behind us who's going to be looking at us, calling us the old men. And, and that's fine. That's, that's the way the world moves forward. So Matt, there's been like some arguments recently in the advisor community about whether the 4% rule is sufficient, whether it's good enough. But it turns out it's more than sufficient. We actually can go a lot higher than that, according to Dave Ramsey, at least. I, I was watching him recently and uh, he, apparently goobers that live in their basement like yourself have told us all these years that we can, the 4% is all we can go to, but we actually can go to eight. And it, it turns out the math is really, really simple here. The stock market gives us 12%. We can take out eight. We got four left for inflation done. Like we, we don't need the planning industry. We don't need any of this. Like we can just take out 8%. I'm planning a lavish retirement right now. Tell me why I can't do that. No, no, this is a fact. I am nothing but a goober <laughs> and he's so close. I'm almost in my parents' basement. <laughs> I live across the street from my parents' basement, but I'm not actually in it anymore. Um, man, so the 4% rule, and we did a whole episode on this. It wasn't ever really a rule to begin with. It was a 4% like hypothesis. It was intended to be a rule of thumb to help with some basic math for a bunch of complicated assumptions. But the reality is, and I see like the 30 year old uh, Henry and fire crowd and some of them talking about 4% will do. And then I just had a conversation with a 
with a, a, a brilliant person getting closer to retirement and her and her husband are working through the 4% thing. And they're like, is this real? And it's like, well, no. And she's like, I know that, but I don't know why I know that. So the 4% rule is a rule of thumb. It was based on a sample in history on 30 year periods and a bunch of stuff that just isn't, it rhymes with the world we live in now, but it doesn't describe the world we live in now. I was thinking about this this morning too. Did you guys see, I, I reposted a thing about this. Uh, are you familiar with the hell chicken? Have you heard of the hell chicken? No. Okay. So there's this dinosaur that, that's a, effectively a chicken, but it's like a human sized chicken. And I think they call it the hell chicken just because it's big and basically terrifying. But what's interesting is the hell chicken exists in like the era of history when we thought the proliferation of dinosaurs should have been getting like narrower. There should have been less dinosaurs on the face of the earth and they're steadily heading towards extinction. What the hell chicken shows us is that like, no, like the dinosaurs were actually continuing to diversify out. The surprise of this is kind of like the 4% rule surprise. People think it's like, oh, well, the whole reality. What year did we say that that paper came out? Was it like mid 90s? I think the that's original. Right. So the original 4% rule is like mid 90s, looking back basically like 40-ish years. And they said, this works on average in the last 40-ish years with these conditions for 30 years periods, which, oh, by the way, there's a pretty limited number of 30-year periods inside of a 40-year window. So even the author knew this. We can accept this now. If we all assume that like there's no proliferation of dinosaurs and somebody, what do we do? Just stop digging up fossils? Just ignore the existence of new weird stuff? No, this is what happens. The 4% rule is a useful artifact of understanding what we can take out of strategy, take out of a strategy, but it has to be dynamic. You have to look deeper. And no matter what Dave Ramsey said or the craziest Henry person you follow on Twitter, they're all full of it. You're just going to have to figure this out for yourself. And destiny is a cruel mistress. So good luck to you. <laughs> and just to, uh, just to tackle the 8% real quick, Matt, um, you can, you might have more to add to this, but number one, well, the please. stock market does not return 12% a year. Uh, number two, even if it did return 12% a year, it does not consistently return 12% a year. So if the first year is down 50% and you're, you're withdrawing 8%, you're going to run out of money very, very quickly. So unless those, you those have are two at the top of my head. You probably got more than that, though. Well, yeah, like, unless you have a dynamic strategy. And, and we talked about this in the episode, and we did another episode just on like guardrails and other strategies for this. If my 8% is tied, so if I have a million dollars, I'm going to take $80,000 a year or something. Like, okay. Uh, Great. Well, if my million dollars, to your point, turns into $500,000, am I still taking the 80 or am I amending that? And just these little types of quirks, they're so important for the end analysis and understanding how you're going to adjust and bend. This is a big reason why when I made the AI point about we started with selling products in the financial services industry, then we moved to allocation. Guess what? That's kind of the period where the whole 4% rule comes from. Then we move into the planning conversations. Why does planning follow the allocation phase of the iterations of our industry? Because we start to realize ideas like this are idiotic and they blow people up in practice. And people who get blown up in practice don't really make for good lifetime clients, um, unless you're buying Dave Ramsey books, in which case he's doing fine. <laughs> One of the things that investors can do is they can use tools like Portfolio Visualize, Visualizer to actually uh, test this kind of stuff. So, um, I just put this in, I used a hundred thousand dollars starting investment, 8% withdrawal rate, and I just allocated a hundred percent to the S and P 500. 
Um, this goes back as far as 1994. So $100,000 today, your, your annualized return would have been 1.2%, but the ending balance as of, I think this is as of 20, let me just see. Yeah, as of December 31st, uh, 2023, would have been $144,000. So you would have been above break even, you know, and you would have been withdrawing 8% a year uh, from that portfolio if you start in 99, which Wait, would have been- was that 8% relative or 8% absolute? 8% based on the portfolio value. Okay. Okay. So, so, so basically to, to explain it, the investor in this scenario is getting a variable stream of income. Correct. That's right. It, it adjusts based. It's not like taking 8% based on a hundred thousand. It's 8% based on the portfolio value. Yeah, Correct. You're, you're not getting $8,000 so, a year. However, you're getting more right. than that by the end, but there are definitely some dog years in there where you're, uh, you're going like, oh, right. So, 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 to, right. So to flush that out, um, the portfolios like low value probably was on a hundred thousand dollar investment. Well, it was somewhere around makes sense. 2009. Cause that was a lost decade. So in that year, the balance was 71,000 and you took out 6,200 basically. So you're not taking out the eight grand a year. You're taking out 6,200. So yes, it's a variable withdrawal rate. But if, if we assume we started like really bad, like in 99, what does that look like? It looks like the total portfolio value today would be worth $75,000. So you still wouldn't have run out of money. That includes actually, let's, let's, let's change that to 2000. Let's change that to 2000. Not 99 was a good year for the market. Let's change it to 2000. So yeah, you're. Ending value today. Actually, interesting that it doesn't change it all that much. I don't think um, it would have been. It would have been. Yeah. So it would have been sixty-seven. So that's interesting. So you had three three bad years out of the gate, and then you had the financial crisis in there, and this is with an eight percent withdrawal rate. But to your Matt's point earlier, at the low value in '09, you would have only been drawing thirty-four hundred off the portfolio. Um, so, and that's the benefit of. You know, if you look at this as an, a standard 4% rule or a standard 8% rule where you're taking the same money no matter what, you know, what you, what you would be finding right now is the negative balances. Right. Um, you'd be finding you, you've lost, you have no money left. Um, because, you know, I think the fact that you put in that variable withdrawal strategy, you know, which is not the standard 4% rule or standard 8% rule, if there even is an 8% rule that exists. Um, but yeah, that, that's why you're seeing that. And, and again, this is all probability. So I bet there is, you know, if I start today, with an 8% rule where I'm taking 8%, I'm not reducing it, I'm adjusting it for inflation like they did in the paper, the chances I will run out of, like that I will still have some money left are probably not zero. I probably have some chance that it'll work out. It's just, you don't wanna go into retirement with a 10% chance you're gonna succeed and a 90% chance you're gonna fail. Like all of these withdrawal rates have 1% on one side and a certain percent on the other side. It's, it's a matter of like what you're willing to live with. So. It's not that Dave Ramsey is like the, the luckiest person in the world who gets the perfect, you know, invested the bottom in 2009. I bet a lot of people that have invested in the bottom of 2009 could have, with, with, you know, had an 8% withdrawal rate. But it's just, you, with, you can't take that chance in retirement because if you're on the other side of the coin, you're dead. So I think that's kind of the issue with these things is like, it's all probability to some so, extent. So, and so using the fixed $8,000, so 8% 8 of 100,000 and then maybe adjusting it slightly up for vacation in the investing in, you know, the year 2000 example, you would have been out of money by 2009 or in 2009 at some point. 
So if you, if the withdrawal rate was kept fixed at 8,000 and then, you know, got bumped up slightly for inflation over time, you know, you, you basically would have run out of money in nine years using an 8% withdrawal rate. Well, at least it was, it was easy to get a job in 2009, wasn't it? You could have just gone back to work. There's plenty of jobs. Of course. Right. Right. There's plenty of jobs. That solved the problem. Yeah. 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 So anyways. Which I say that as a horrible joke, because if somebody actually went through that, that would be atrocious. But I say that as a horrible joke to remind you, like, it's always a balancing act. And that's why, back to the AI point, AI point, like the next aspect after planning is, I believe, some form of like coaching or professional involvement with people in the advisor function where it's like understanding what all these options are and then rumbling through them, to use the Brene Brown word, like rumbling through that vulnerability of like, what does this mean for me? Oh, crap. I worked with this guy, Dave Ramsey. He told me this was okay. Now it's 2009. The account's hitting zero. I think I have to get a job again. How do I strategically think through this? Welcome to real life. You know, and Dave's not going to answer your calls in that situation um, to help you out, I don't think. Now what? The, does he still have a radio show? Can I call into a radio show? I don't know. I think well, the thing hey, he puts on YouTube is technically a radio show. I'm not really sure. Jack, I, I, this may be good or bad, but you know that little slice I used to do on our YouTube covers that we, we now don't do anymore? I used to like slice the yeah. cover in half and have one side. That was a Dave Ramsey ripoff design thing. I oh. was like, oh, what, what is this guy doing for covers? Oh, I might as well try to copy that. He must know what he's doing. It works. Yeah, exactly. Right. And then, well, yeah, but look at our covers now. They've changed the loss now. So. <laughs> Look at us now. No more Fruit Ninja um, Dave Ramsey for us. <laughs> <laughs> Fruit Ninja, I love it. So one of the things that we've we've been lucky enough, I think, for uh, with excess returns and, and the types of guests we've we've had is a lot of these guys are doing some innovative things with different ETFs and different investment strategies within um, the ETF wrapper. And so you're getting more and more advanced, whether it's managed future, some of the stuff that Corey Hosking is doing with return stacking and the resolve guys are doing with return stacking. And, you know, you continue to see sort of these more innovative, differentiated, alternative type strategies finding their way into ETFs. And, and, and generally, I, I personally think that that's those are good options, especially if they're, you know, they're done in a tax efficient way. And usually they're done, you know, these offerings are pretty low on the fees relative to what you might have to pay for a hedge fund, hedge fund um, strategy. So, yeah, I think that whether we're talking fact or fiction on this, I think like from my perspective, I think it's, you know, generally that's been a good development for investors. Hold on, Jack, I'm answering this first and then you're going you're gonna to correct me on any of this stuff. Go ahead. I, I feel like ETS as a wrapper around so many things because of the tax efficiency that's like the huge win. The last, geez, 30-ish years since ETFs became a thing, we have a well-vetted, well-defined by IRS and other legal standards what this wrapper is and what it means to create and redeem units and buy and trade and how all this stuff works. That's the big win. So long as ETFs are effective, means, tax-efficient for investors to use them as products, wonderful. All the providers you just named, a bunch of others, so long as they're also doing stuff where the fees are reasonable and they're not doing crazy stuff outside of the bounds or the natural parameters of the wrappers, then great. That benefits everybody. Can you still make a bad ETF? Oh, I am quite certain you can still make an atrocious ETF. But I think a lot of these strategies coming in this wrapper, is, it's net net. It's a huge win for investors. 
Yeah, I would agree. I think this is a fact. I think the big the big caveat here is it, it's it's a this the answer to this is investor by investor because the question comes down to is the investor willing to educate themselves about what the ETF is actually doing. So for investors who understand these products, these products are a massive win. There's there's no other way to look at it. For an investor who's going to be like, oh, look at this, you know, leveraged interest rate exposure. I'd love to, I'd love to time that this month because I think interest rates are going wherever I think they're going. Like, and I have no idea what I'm getting. That's a problem. And, you know, that's always the balance in investing is like it's, and we'll talk about this a little bit more maybe with factor investing as well is, you know, these products are only as good as the investors who follow them. And do you assume like the investor is going to educate themselves? Well, a lot of them are, but again, a lot of them aren't. And, and so that's the challenge when you're looking at this as a whole, like, are these things good for investors? Yeah, I think they do. Because I think they are because I think most people are going to spend the time to figure this out. But there's also going to be this other portion of people who are not going to do that and are going to get themselves into trouble, not because they're bad ETFs or not because they're not well-designed strategies because they are, but because they're not going to understand what they're getting and they're going to make behavioral mistakes around it. The behavior gap doesn't go away just because we have better, more tax efficient, smarter products out there. The behavior gap never goes away. This is the human psychology is older than time itself. We can make the best ETF in the world. People will still figure out a way to trade it disastrously wrong and savagely underperform what just like holding and sitting tight will do. But. And, you know, a lot of these like a lot of these leverage exposures are meant to be like a small portion of your portfolio because you're using a smaller amount of your money to get the same exposure and you're coupling that with like offsetting exposures. Well, if you just go dump all your money in that leveraged exposure, now you, you're not using it as intended and you've got a mess on your hands. And that's kind of the problem is like, you really have to understand what this is and how to properly use it. And if you do, I think they're hundred percent of benefit. I can't put all my money into levered put shorting or whatever. What was the one that blew up a few years ago? It's like a, the short vol strategy. The XIV. Yeah. The short vol strategy. Yep. You got to know how you're building with this stuff. It's amazing though, how many, especially in the alternative space, stuff that was prohibitive to build into portfolios. And I'm just, I'm thinking of a bunch of the tools we use in portfolio construction. Like it's wild how much cheaper and how much more tax efficient they are in some of these wrappers. It's absolutely wild. And we can size them into positions to your point and actually use them as useful tools. That's so cool that that exists so much more broadly than it did, but all the ways you could use them badly have not gone away. So let's sort of bring this home with some ideas and a discussion around factor investing. Um, obviously, Matt, I think you use some factor strategies for your clients. Um, you know, we run a series of a number of different investment strategies, and they're really all based on investment factors or investment criteria. And they kind of tend to express themselves in like a category, whether we're talking growth, momentum, or quality, low volatility, stuff like that. So I guess... But there, but factors also, because they look different than the market, they can go through periods where they don't keep up with the market and they underperform. And that's that behavioral thing that you were just talking about before, Jack, in terms of investors understanding what they're getting. But are factors <laughs> good for most investors? Or what do you guys think? Yeah, no, I think this is fiction. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm the biggest believer in the world in factor investing, by the way. Um, but I think it all comes down to like, I, I've always been a big believer that your average investor should index, you know, anything that looks different than the index for your average investor, like for my family out there who doesn't, is not like in this world like us, it, it introduces additional challenges because you're going to make behavioral mistakes when those differences play themselves out. 
you know, if, if you were a value, I mean, how many people, like of the percentage of investors we've seen in our careers, how many of them are going to sit through the 10-year drawdown in value, you know, and, st and still be in value on the backside of the 10 years? Maybe some because they have a smart advisor like Matt and they've blended value with a bunch of other stuff. And so they don't see the, the underperformance in value as much. But most people are going to be looking at the line item in the portfolio and being like, you know what, I've, I've had enough of this. And it's probably going to be at the time where you really want to be in that, not the time you want to be going out of it. So I think for your average person on the street, you know, factor investing is probably not something they should be doing. And if they should be doing it, they shouldn't be doing it the way we do it, where it's very aggressive exposures. They should be doing it the way Vanguard does it or whoever else does it, where it's small tilts, you know, a slight bet on it. You're not looking that dis different than the S&P. You can stick with it over time. Factors are important. They're great for understanding. And perhaps the most important lesson of all, it's never a good idea to make any decision on pure logic and no emotion whatsoever. <laughs> Neuroscience, behavioral psychology, they all teach us this. Emotions are part of it. We can't rule them out altogether. And like pure, pure systematic, like quant value, like has certain upsides. If you can be tied to sticking it out over time, it can also be the cruelest mistress of them all and just destroy your hearts and dreams as it uh, takes you through periods of serial underperformance. But just understanding that mix of which factors rhyme with your reality and your personality can really help enhance a portfolio. And for us, like we spend a lot of time with like, like size as a factor, with quality as a factor, uh, with certain things in like the bond land with basically like uh, term and credit and things like that to understand what are the drivers of returns and that's useful, but those drivers of the returns and the risks that always come on the other side of the returns, those are always going to be personal. And each individual investor to the degree they want to wade into the waters of factors should be mostly paying attention for what are they naturally predisposed for that says like, I get this, this rhymes with who I am and therefore rhymes with my ability to stick with it. Because at the end of the day, Jack, to your point, most people should just index in the sense that just give me the exposure to the thing that uh, is the culmination of all the things rolled up into one. Drill down to the degree that your personality urges you to drill down, but then drill down to stuff where you actually, investor, know thyself. Don't pretend, you know, you're something else. It's okay to have a degenerate gambling account too. If you want to do some stupid stuff, just size that risk accordingly and, uh, do as I do. Own your small cap value fund inside of that old IRA that doesn't have that much money in it. But who knows? Maybe that's the thing that's going to buy you a yacht. Yeah, I think those are really good points. You know, for us and clients that actually have put money with us and, and trusted us with their their money, some in some cases, it's someone's full retirement assets. Um, you know, indexing certainly could work um, for them. But, you know, they, all of our investors, for the most part, like learned about Validia's investment strategy, Validia Capital strategies, and the way that we kind of construct these portfolios. And so for them, it was, there was like intellectual interest and they were attracted to the way that we built strategies, the way that we deployed factors. Um, and what we try to do as best as possible is educate our investors. Um, and many of them are average investors. Um, educate them on sort of what you're getting when you make an investment with us, how we're going to control risk, why the allocation is appropriate for their situation. And then, you know, we run the strategies day in and day out with discipline. And so, um, 
I, I think that that's important to sort of just share that that's sort of how we work with investors. And, but if somebody comes to us and says, you know what, I'm considering the S&P 500 here, but I also, or whatever, Russell 2000, whatever it is, or I want to index, I want to, I want to go passive or Validia Capital. What can you offer me? And what are the possible pluses and one of the possible minuses? I mean, one of the things that I feel very strongly about is we give people the facts and the answers, and it's more about educating upfront. And sometimes you get the right clients on the bus, sometimes you don't. But I think if you do that, you know, you're being honest with investors and, um, you know, ultimately that's sort of the best policy. Yeah. The, the gap between what you said and what I said is education. So you, if you talk about your average person out there, your average person is not going to talk to somebody like us. Your average person is going to be sitting out there looking at factor ETF, whatever that's, that's floating around. And, and they're probably not going to do the work to understand, you know, when is this going to do well? When is this going to do poorly? How volatile is this going to be? How is this going to fit in my situation? And so I think that's the difference. You know, you're hundred percent right about that. Like someone who can work with us, who can understand what this is, someone who can work with Matt to say, how does this size properly in my portfolio? Like then factor investing makes a ton of sense. But I, I, I think my, my point is that is not your average person. You know, that is not my uncle sitting out there or whatever, you know, who's just looking at random things he could buy and saying like, should I be investing in the value ETF? Like he shouldn't because he won't have the conviction. He won't have the education we can provide. Like, and he will abandon it at the wrong time. And if he abandons it at the wrong time, it's worse than just indexing. And so I, I think that's the definition. I mean, I think we're saying basically the same thing. You know, I think we're both huge believers in factor investing. And I think Matt is too, that it works over time. But you can also be a believer that, you know, your average person who's sitting out there on the street, who's not working with someone who can educate them around this probably shouldn't be using it. Mm -hmm. If you don't have, I love the way you guys are both framing, because if you don't have the desire for the education, then the education is not adding something to your life. If your desire is just to like gamble with stuff, and there's lots of people who want to speculate and gamble, that's okay. You should be honest that that's what you're trying to do. And if your desire is to learn more, yeah, factor investing can open up all sorts of schools or uh, abilities to do different things inside of a portfolio and express them over time. That's fantastic. We're all part of that ecosystem. The, you're, you guys at Validia, me with Sunpoint of like sitting around having these conversations with people who have a desire for education and execution and then saying like, I'm at that point where I want that value allocation Jack, Justin, help me do it. Uh, Matt, I think value makes sense in my portfolio. Okay, it should be this percentage of your U.S. large cap allocation in this way, but we don't think you should be doing this or worrying about this in Europe for whatever reason. The answers are there. It should, again, it, it's tied back to you individually, and that becomes the most important, the most important thing here. So we recently had... Um... And it's not out yet. It's coming out next week. We had two academics, well, one academic and one individual that works at the Federal Reserve. We had Alejandro Lopez Lera, who is a professor at the University of Florida, and uh, Andrew Chan, who is an economist at the Federal Reserve. And they published this very interesting paper. Um, see if I can describe it here. They basically looked at the anomalies that have been identified in empirical finance. So value, momentum those types of major anomalies. Um, and then they looked at the performance of the anomaly or the factor, let's just use those terms interchangeably, up until the date that the factor 
or anomaly was identified in the academic research and then out of sample. So how does that factor work afterwards? And so what they saw in that data set was there was a significant decay from leading up to the factor to when the factor was identified and then the decay came afterwards. So the, the decay came after the factor was out in like the public domain. Um, and they had some theories and reasons for that. And the data set, I believe, was like 1963 to 1990 and then 1990 to 2021, right, Jack? My, uh, my I think it's about right. Time yeah. period, right? Okay, anyway, so, but then what were they, were they kind of turned things upside? And I don't know if that was original to them or not. Maybe it was, I'm not sure. Um, I would imagine other people have looked at that, but, but then they basically said, well, what if we just took all the accounting data out there and we just data mined the crap out of and created these super simple, like two variable strategies or a numerator and denominator. So you're not combining different criteria. They're just taking like, like gross assets over equity or, you know, I don't know, debt over uh, cash flow. So whatever, all these different things. And they, they tested this 29,000 different strategies over those same two periods. And they basically found that they were able to, some of those data mine strategies actually had the same amount of uh, effectiveness as, if I'm using the term right, as the anomalies did both in and out of sample. So, and what was, what was interesting, and Jack, I'll let you kind of maybe flush some of that out if I'm missing some stuff, but what I found interesting and when we asked Alejandro this, he was asking the question of, does it really even matter if there's a reason why these factors work? Like, and he was kind of relating to there's like with the AI and the computing power and stuff, like, could there be a day where it's something that makes absolutely no sense? It's there. It shows some premium, some risk factor, and should even investors bother to really ask why it works. It just works and that's all we need to care about. So I don't know. Yeah, the, the general idea is like all of us who follow factor investing or who test strategies have been told like there needs to be a reason why this works. You know, if you want this to persist in the future, you, you need an explanation. And that's where things like the behavioral explanation and the risk-based explanation come in. What they did in this paper is they found factors that have a risk-based explanation. They found factors that have a behavioral explanation. And then they mined a bunch of factors and found factors that effectively have no explanation. And what they found is there is zero difference out of sample between those three groups. It's the same thing. Like there's no reason like, Matt, if I was to go to you and say, let's invest based on the PE ratio. And I was to say, let's invest based on inventory divided by property, plant and equipment. There's no reason to think like number one is going to outperform number two in the future. Um, so it's a huge thing. I mean, it'll turn like, it's a massive conclusion for the types of things we do um, if it ends up being true, you know, and they've shown that, I mean, the data supports what they're saying here. So it's kind of a breakthrough paper, but it's interesting in that it makes all of us who practice this type of stuff, you know, sort of question this idea of, do we need this, do we need this basis? Do we need this, you know, behavioral explanation? Do we need this risk-based explanation? Or, you know, if it shows in the data over time, like, is it just as likely to keep working? And in some cases you could right. say, it's more likely to keep working because the stuff that has the explanations, that's the stuff people are throwing a bunch of money at and the stuff that like nobody understands, people are not. So maybe there's more, you know, white space there. I mean, it's new to us, so we don't have like any great conclusions on it yet, but it's, it's really, really interesting research. 
it feels like it's this is the great AI allocator investor like arm yeah. opportunity. If you can prove it and you can put money into it, great. I think this is the hardest story ever to sell because the real power of this stuff is you raise assets when you have a good story that people are like, well, that Warren Buffett guy makes a lot of sense. I think value and quality sound like a good deal. And to your point, like inventories divided by PP&E or like whatever it is, it's, it's, it's hard to wrap a story around that aside from, unless you can make it wrapped around to like everybody else is an idiot and look, I can make monkey dart throwing strategies that do magical things too. That's, what do you think? Like, and that's, that's why I would say it's fiction that the, the, the reason that it doesn't matter whether you have a reason or not is even if the data does show this, it's because of the behavioral side of it is like, I got to get an investor to invest in this thing. I believe, I firmly believe that this can be there and that they're finding something that's real while also firmly believing they are describing something that's like impossible to sell outside of like on some weird, like Lark. Yeah, I do. And you know, you, I mean, Justin talks to our clients all the time. Like, you can't go to a, I mean, clients do want to understand to some degree what you're doing and that it's based in like economic reality or it's based in the variables that matter for a business. And, you know, what they did in this paper is they didn't care. They just divided, they used a bunch of ratios. They took every fundamental thing, divided one by the other, found out which ones work best. And they, they persisted just as much as the ones that had a reason. But like when you get to selling those to end investors, it, it becomes challenging to say, all right, like he, he, these things that don't make any sense to you, like they don't make sense, but we think they're going to work really well in the future versus like you said, you know, uncle Warren or whatever value and quality combined together. Like people love that. So, and again, we all know that a strategy someone can stick with is better than one they can't. So even if this bears out in the data, you're probably still better off with the uncle Warren approach because people are going to like that. They're going to like their buying quality businesses at a discount. Even Bernie Madoff had compelling underlying strategies that he convinced people to give him money with. And I'm not saying this is a recipe for fraud. I'm not like accusing that of anything else. I'm just saying it's a really hard story to put a product around and turn around and sell some solution out of, but fully fascinating. I can't wait to hear this interview you guys did because like just seeing that, that this could even exist, it's, it's, it's pretty wild. It's pretty wild research. What interests me is like, could we ever see like the sort of the data mining X, you know, believable factors ETF. So Effectively, what I would try to do is I would data mine all the factors. I would cut out all the ones that actually are like value and momentum, the ones that make sense. And I would just have like the one that's completely on, you know, separate from that. Like no one would invest in that thing, but uh, it would be interesting. Like if that would be an interesting strategy, like the stuff that tests out really well, that makes no sense, ends up being like an ETF someday that somebody puts out. So this could be, this could be subject to all sorts of like statistical issues. This was not a re a properly researched or like documented strategy, but uh, years ago. So this was probably like 10 ish, maybe more years ago and probably looking at a no more than 20 year piece of like data. So we were talking with somebody who did like moat or wide moat oriented strategies. So companies that have de defensible positions in their, um, like preserving their profit margins or return on capital, blah, 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 in some way, shape or form. And we asked the question inside of this of like, okay, well, when we tried to understand the strategy, we started to understand it as quality with, or yeah, quality with like a value bias. And it started to be, is the way you're filtering for quality inside this universe actually like prohibitive? And so it was kind of funny was without making an inverse version of the strategy, 
we said like, well, what if you uh, specifically went like, instead of the wide moat companies, what if you went to just the no moat companies and applied a similar thing? And the crazy thing was it actually had better returns mm. than like the, pro the product they were selling. The problem was, as I'm sure both of you can already guess, this ended up being like kind of like a weird, quirky, no moat, uh, quantitative value type strategy. And a couple mm -hmm. little things in to kind of get rid of like whatever Molodovsky effect and that type of stuff. Like it wasn't just low P multiples or something. Um, but it was like, I mean, it was insane. It was like three times more volatile. I'm sure. You buying, yeah. You were buying right. like the worst no moat, like crazy, but, crazy things. I'm sure there was super cyclical businesses in there and just like, yeah, it probably was. No one could stay with it. The only thing that was saving it was, uh, and this was the other takeaway, like the rudimentary thing that at least closed the universe around this thing was also like a version of quality. And so the only other benefit that this like universe had when we started to test for these, like the anti-factors inside of this thing was like, there was a very high survivorship bias present in the group. So like very mm -hmm. few of the companies who survived to even get into the universe, like ended up going bankrupt. So yes, there were some incidences of it, but it was also, that was another striking takeaway. Very few of these companies just ceased to exist. Whereas if we just looked at like, you know, the Russell 2000 or whatever, some unfiltered universe would have looked like we found a lot more, as you would expect, companies that just ceased to exist. Um, and that was part of the other quirky thing. Like if you could find companies that stay in business, but are unusually cheap, even if they have like no moat, you'd have three times the volatility and you have exceptional returns. But again, like who buys that? So Matt, just bring us home with a musical reference that kind of ties all this stuff together. We've talked about a lot of different things, but I know there's something, there's some common theme here. And given your history and knowledge of music, I know you have something in mind yours. So I think, I don't, I don't, can't remember if we talked about it on the podcast before, but it's definitely something I, I've written about because this really weird thing happened in 2023 in that uh, 2023 was the first year since 1993 with what? Do you guys know what was not on the charts that had been on the charts from 1993 to 2023? Uh, potentially rap, is that? Yeah. Okay. This 2023 was the first year since 1993 that there was not a single rap song that had topped the billboard charts. And I've got a couple of things. I've got some thoughts on like why this happened. Do you, either of you guys want to take your own? There's no right answer to this. We can't prove this, but I'm, I think it applies to all this. T take a stab. I'm, I'm going to say Taylor Swift knocked everyone out. So the, 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 the chances of getting on there were not as high for your average artist. That could be part of it. Jack, you got any statistical takes? I have, I have absolutely nothing on this one. This, this one is well outside of my uh, area of confidence. So, so here's, and this is what I think is interesting about this. Rap as a musical genre, if, or as a, as a music form, I should say first, around for 50 years. Then you have rap as like a recognized genre around for basically like 40 years. And then we have rap as something that is like chartable, that has dedicated radio stations that has like the urban format, the tanning of America, as Stephen Stout calls it, that happens. That's a 30 year phenomenon. And so what's interesting is like 50 years from being a musical form that exists, 40 years from basically being a recognizable genre, 30 years from being on the charts. I think what happened is it just got into everything. 
And the analog here is we're 20 some years, almost 30 years, maybe from the beginning of the internet, as we know it. And it's kind of everywhere now. Rap music worked its way into every other genre. There are Taylor Swift songs that have mm. like undeniable rap influenced parts to them. There are country songs that have undeniable rap influenced parts to them. There are pop songs and there are weird dance songs and everything else that have undeniable rap oriented components within them. And just like the internet is now in every, like there's no company that's not on the internet today. Find me a company that has nothing to do with the internet. Even the most boring, like, I don't know, plumber has like a website and a way to find them online. And with whatever we're going to see with AI, with all this stuff in our rear view window, this is the common theme. The new thing gets big. It blows up. It might even dominate the charts for a series of years, but then it slowly gets integrated into everything else. And that's a musical lesson. That's a cultural lesson. And I think markets were learning that lesson probably in the next decade with maybe it's the Magnificent Seven or what else, but slowly, the more prevalent, the bigger stuff becomes, the more it gets absorbed into every aspect of our cultural lives. Good stuff, Matt. Wait Take to... that to the bank with <laughs> Swift, Olivia Rodrigo, and whatever else uh, in Beyonce's world tour. All right, everyone. Thank you guys for watching. We'll see you next time. Hi, guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at PracticalQuant. You can follow me on Twitter at, at JJCarbono. And follow Matt on Twitter at, at CultishCreative. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube, or leave a review or a comment. Also, if you have any ideas for topics you'd like us to cover in the future, please email us at excessreturnspod at gmail.com. We would like this to be a listener-driven podcast and would appreciate any suggestions. Thank you.